This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. As always, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Civic or PAX. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Civilian Protection Podcast. I'm Annie Scheel, U.S. Advocacy Director at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. And today I'm joined by Thomas Van Hul, PAX's Project Lead for Israel and Palestine, who will co-host today's episode. Thomas, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks a lot, Annie. Thanks for having me. I'm indeed a PAX Project Lead for Israel-Palestine, and in that capacity, supporting our Israeli and Palestinian partners, and of course, conducting a lot of advocacy and awareness-raising efforts, especially also the last few weeks. Uh, mainly focusing on Europe and specifically the Netherlands. And today's episode focuses on the conflict and civilian harm in Gaza in the occupied Palestinian territory. Yeah, and 2023 was already an extremely violent year with over 100 Palestinians killed in the West Bank. And this escalated dramatically on October 7th uh, when Hamas attacked, killing 1,200 people and taking more than 200 people hostage. The Israeli response has been extremely fierce with bombardments on Gaza and a ground offensive. As of this episode's recording date, reportedly killing over 13,000 Palestinians, including 5,500 children. And the destruction is, of course, immense. Gaza's health ministry says the Palestinian death toll now exceeds 10,000. Israeli ground troops are surrounding Gaza City this morning. The troops are expected to enter the city. To Dozens of Palestinians lie dead covered by body bags. This is the aftermath of Israeli bombing on the town of Deir al-Bala in the central Gaza Strip. We were displaced from northern Gaza. We came to stay here with my aunt. It was night. I was just sitting there when the bombing happened. We found ourselves in the midst of the debris, pulled us out from under the rubble. You can see the children, young boys and girls, they were all martyred. UNICEF is calling for a ceasefire, saying Gaza is now a, quote, graveyard for thousands of children. UNICEF says over 420 kids are being killed or injured every single day amid increased destruction to civilian infrastructure, including refugee camps and hospitals. Now they want an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to allow for the flow of aid and for abducted kids to be released. As organizations focused on the protection of civilians, both Civic and PACS have been calling for adherence to international humanitarian law and the protection of civilians and civilian objects in Gaza, as well as an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to de-escalate and prevent further harm. We'll talk more about that and other calls at the end of the episode. As Thomas noted, the scale of civilian harm reported out of Gaza has been staggering. And so to help us make sense of these numbers, we are very pleased to welcome Emily Tripp, Director of Air Wars, the Civilian Harm Watchdog. Welcome, Emily, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Emily, can you start by introducing yourself and your organization? Um, Air Wars plays a pretty unique role in monitoring conflict and civilian harm around the world. So when you say you're a civilian harm watchdog, what does that mean? 
Thanks, Annie. Um, so, yeah, we're a civilian harm watchdog organisation. We've been around for about 10 years now. Um, we really started looking at the untold stories of civilian harm. Um, so somewhere between the numbers that were estimated by militaries themselves perpetrating harm and the numbers that were being reported out by local media and organisations. Um, we've worked for uh, different, we've worked on different conflicts. So looking at Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, um, and also we looked at the Gaza Strip in May 2021. And when and how did Air Wars' work on Gaza begin, and especially around um, the current offensive, and what does that look like? Yeah, so after the events on October 7th, which have been uh, well described in the introduction, um, as an organization, we really took a long time to think through uh, exactly how we can add value um, in this conflict. Um, as I said, we monitored civilian harm in May 2021, um, but the scale already of what we were seeing within those first few days was immense. Um, and so we had a conversation as a team. Um, it took us about three or four days to kind of really go through everything and think, you know, where are the gaps here? Um, and then we saw, I think it was by the end of that first week, the organizations that we normally um, see reporting on civilian harm, organizations like Amazon, um, they were unable to go about their uh, usual work um, because of the access limitations and because of the security constraints. Um, we also saw at the same time that the number of bombs that the Israelis were saying that they were dropping was um, intense. Um, so we really felt... At the same time, our methodology was able to kind of make sense of this very complicated environment at a time when it seemed that nobody really knew uh, what was happening. Um, and kind of claims from some areas were being combated by claims from other areas. Um, and in general, it was creating a, an information environment that was essentially um, losing the uh, civilian toll. Yeah, thanks, Emily. And in terms of top line analysis, what have you found so far? Yeah, so we found now that we've got uh, about 1,000 civilian harm allegations that we've yet to go through. Um, so by that, I mean a single time in, in place um, and, and space um, where a civilian was said to be injured or killed. Um, and then each of those allegations, we then go through those and, and assess them and, and put them on our website. Um, this is so far, in terms of just a top line um, result, the most intense campaign we have ever monitored. Um, and that's including really, really intense campaigns of, of Mosul, of Raqqa, of Russian uh, strikes in Syria and, and parts of Ukraine. Um, we're also seeing mass casualty events. I mean, our, our monitors are looking at, you know, 25 to 30 individual incidents a day um, since October 7th. Um, and in many of these cases, we're looking at dozens and dozens of casualties in each strike. But one of the big um, standout features, I think, of this conflict is the number of people who are dying alongside their family members. Um, we've been trying to identify family units where we can um, to try and make sense of overall death tolls. Um, and we're finding in so many of these cases um, that indeed individuals are, are dying alongside brothers, cousins, parents. Um, and I think that's one of the, the most challenging things that, that we're dealing with at the moment. Yeah, and if you look at other specific uh, elements of this campaign that is causing the majority of harm? I think, unfortunately, it's an extremely predictable thing, um, but it's the fact that this is a very dense urban area we're talking about. Um, we've seen this in Mosul, in Raqqa, in Aleppo, um, when these explosive weapons are used with such intensity in such urban areas, um, the harm is huge. Um, 
in many cases, we're seeing that even the initial casualty estimates that we find from one particular strike um, is probably an under-report because we're seeing so many additional claims of people still in the rubble. Um, and this kind of damaged the infrastructure and, and the rubble and the kind of physicality of, of, of the Gaza Strip um, is really making uh, casualty recording in, in this conflict extremely challenging. We, of course, also see a lot of uh, misinformation being spread. And you mentioned that you are um, yeah, looking at the casualty numbers. Can you maybe walk us through the process of how you do that and also how you verify these, these numbers? Yeah, so um, I think maybe just important to note, this isn't the first conflict that has uh, unfolded online. Um, as an organization, we primarily work um, with an open source methodology. Um, so our system is essentially to aggregate every single bit of information that exists in the online environment around a moment in place and time where harm occurred. Um, the May 2021 campaign was called the TikTok War, if you remember, because of so much, um, so many harm claims that, that were being kind of put out on, on social media. And of course, with social media comes misinformation. Um, so our approach, we, we stay away from the word verify because we don't believe in absolutes, um, especially in very complicated conflict environments. But instead, what we do is kind of aggregate all of the information um, and categorize that information. And as soon as you start categorizing information around a civilian harm event, um, we're able to show really what's likely to have occurred. Um, and we're able quite quickly to also um, remove cases that, that may be from other conflicts or maybe from information that isn't necessarily relevant to uh, what's unfolding in, in Gaza. You see that there is that this controversy uh, nevertheless. So how do you see this? Is that that's something that, yeah, what kind of numbers are being contested and by whom and how do you interpret this? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the main controversy at the moment is around the death toll, um, the death toll of civilians. And I think this is something that, as I said, you know, that this isn't the first um, conflict. It's definitely not the first war in the Gaza Strip, and it's not the first time the Ministry of Health has come out with numbers. Um, I think the controversy in this case is very particular because of two reasons. One of them is that the harm is so high. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. Um, the numbers and the thousands and the thousands of deaths in such a short space of time. I mean, uh, this is really, the, you know, numbers that are very difficult to comprehend, no matter kind of where, where you are uh, in the world. Um, but I think the second one is that as a official health ministry, the structure of the Gaza Strip is such that it's um, linked to uh, the, the governing authorities, um, who are Hamas. And so there has been this kind of politicization of the numbers, um, which has been used kind of on all sides. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's one of those cases that's very understandable and very natural, but also is quite worrying. Um, because as soon as we start to um, disbelieve certain numbers, or we start focusing really on overall statistics, um, you know, we really start to lose sight of, of the humanity and the human lives uh, lost in, in war. Yeah, you were mentioned indeed, and then we kind of lose sight on the on the humanity. What are the implications of this? Or what what could be the implications? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for us as an organisation, for example, you know, while we try and focus on, um, you know bringing together a casualty range so that we can really understand exactly the scale of what's happening, which is very 
helpful for different types of understanding. It helps us understand, you know, how certain weapons have certain impacts on civilian populations or how civilians move through space and time in war um, in a way that can then help humanitarian organizations um, feed into, you know, their, their own kind of strategic planning. Um, it also helps us understand, you know, maybe a gendered impact of war or the impact of war on, on children. Um, but I think the implications when we really focus overall on these statistics um, is that we're really losing that kind of um, connection between us on the outside of war and those people who are kind of suffering in, in, in the middle of it. Um, and I think it's just, it's a good reminder to all of us, you know, wars are often fought in the names of the people that they're trying to protect. Um, and I think it's important for everyone really around the world to understand that this most lethal arm of the state, you know, what does that actually mean uh, in terms of um, you know, collateral damage or justifications or legitimization of, of certain violent behaviours. I think it's important for us all to kind of um, keep in mind that there are other people and, and other humans on on the flip side of that. Um, and I think also just, you know, a, a final point on that, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take someone with special skill or knowledge in terms of verification or misinformation or open source analysis or even expertise in the field of, you know, casualty recording to understand that even uh, when you start looking at the images and videos that are coming out of the Gaza Strip, um, that you know that what, what we're seeing is a profoundly dangerous and deadly environment uh, for hundreds, if, if not thousands of civilians. And Emily, you know, you mentioned the the sheer number of mass casualty events that you've been assessing in this conflict. Um, one event that has received a lot of attention has been the multiple Israeli strikes on Jabalia refugee camp. And I know that Air Wars just published an assessment of that case. Can you talk through that incident and what the assessment process looked like and what you found? Yeah. Um, so this was um, a case on the 31st of October was the first of these major strikes, even though, as you said, there have been multiple strikes in that location kind of before and since. Um, this assessment, we found that at least 126 civilians, we think, were likely killed. Um, and that includes um, 10 families. Um, that includes um, almost 70 children. Um, and we found 116 names, partial names or full names of individuals. Um, just to put that in, in context, I said, you know, as a casualty organization, this is kind of the business of what we do. Um, we've been working for 10 years, multiple different conflicts. We have never, ever in our research ever found a case where we found so many names identified of civilians um, who've been killed. So I think that just kind of like gives you a bit of a reflection. And also the fact that this isn't the only mass casualty event that we've monitored. Um, at the moment, there's a case on my desk to review, which is also, um, you know, potentially 70 civilians who've been killed in a single strike that, that went largely uncovered by the international media um, just over the weekend. So I think, you know, the, the case of Jabalia also is a case not necessarily exceptional, but also devastating in, in its specificity. Um, the way that we really went around this assessment, we were trying to find exactly the numbers of people um, who were killed in a very complicated environment. So what we were seeing many times were, for example, interviews with relatives who were um, in quite some distress at their, um, yeah, their relatives who, who'd been killed or injured in a strike. Um, so what we were seeing was trying to identify, okay, if you've got a mother at the corner of a crater who's screaming for her child, 
how do we count that as a casualty recorder? So we were kind of going through and digitally, you know, <laughs> diligently recording, okay, that must be one child then that, that has been killed. Um, our researchers have this kind of extremely difficult and very grueling job of finding um, family connections between people. Um, so they found, for example, there was a, a man, um, Abdul Rayyan, who, who held up on, on Reuters a list, a piece of paper. Um, and on the piece of paper was a list of 15 names of his family members who were killed. Um, and our Arabic language researchers, they took a screenshot of that list and then found every single name from that list and looked for all of the biographies of people um, described in, you know, one of them was a doctor and one of them was, you know, had a different profession that we found and was related to that person and this person. And we kind of gathered all of that information together um, to create a full picture of the Ryan family um, that we then recorded in, in the assessment. Um, and that was really just, you know, a proportion of the cases we found. We found also a whole bunch of other um, individuals in that assessment who we don't know the names of at all. Um, we just know them by, um, yeah, either their grieving grieving friends or grieving relatives or, um, you know, mentions in, in social media posts um, as people were trying to kind of document the, the horror uh, of that day. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that kind of work is so important because one thing we wanted to talk about is you know, we've spoken so much about the numbers and the statistics with the risk of losing sight of each of those numbers is a name, is a life, is a person. Um, and so you've spoken quite about a bit about this already, but um, would love if you can speak a little bit more about how Air Wars is grappling with that in this conflict um, more broadly as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, as an organization looking at the open source world, um, there is so much information I think that we all have about ourselves online, um, whether you're in Syria or whether you're in DC or, or London or wherever. Um, and all of that information is, is open source. And so what we try and do is capture um, this kind of, um, it's been called a digital ripple in the past, you know, the, the kind of waves that, that individuals and human lives make in the online environment. Um, and we try and capture that to, to kind of preserve a um, an obituary almost of each of the individuals that we find in the strikes. Um, so, for example, um, you know we found a number of different cases where people were about to get married, um, and so there was all of this reporting about them and their families online um, because life goes on. You know, even in the middle of like the most intense uh, war, you still have these you know routine things that people are doing and. Our researchers really try and capture all of that, all of those details um, to make sure that, yes, you know, it's important for us as an organization to come out with these ranges and the numbers and, and ensure we have these impartial um, kind of statistics of what's going on. But also all of those things that exist out there anyway um, about who we are and, and who individuals are um, to make sure that when you're looking at those assessments and you're reading them, you're really understanding that, you know, this was an individual who, who lived a certain life and, um you know, was lost um, as a result of war. And then I think the other side of that is we also don't want to miss, you know, the broader and longer impact uh, across, you know, for the entire civilian population of this conflict. And so what has your work shown you about that? You know, I think it seems that the overall impact is that nowhere is safe for civilians in Gaza right now. Um, so what has uh, Airwars' research revealed about that? Yeah, I mean, I think as in all wars, um, the fatalities and the injuries are really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of civilian harm. Um, what we've been capturing, and this has been a long process, um, but is essentially all of the other 
um, references to certain damage of infrastructure in the civilian environment that happens around a particular fatality incident. So, for example, we've been looking at healthcare and looking at, okay, if this was an ambulance that was destroyed or if this was a corner of a hospital that was destroyed or if this was, um, maybe it was um, a doctor who was on their way to um, delivering some medical supplies, if that was impacted during this conflict, what does that then mean as a wider, kind of broader effect of, of war? Um, we've also done some studies we did last year. Um, we looked at with the Organisation Conflict Environment Observatory. And we're really trying to understand what does, for example, uh, the, the actual physical infrastructure of the city of Gaza look like after um, this very intense campaign that happened in May 2021? And we were focusing on um, water supply, particularly because, um, as you'll see in many of the reports that come out of, of the Gaza Strip, that you have attacks on um, what, what are meant to be you know, Hamas tunnel networks. Um, so as soon as those tunnel networks are impacted, the whole infrastructure and the city infrastructure around them also gets impacted. Um, so I think it's something that's really challenging to quantify and it's challenging to um, really account for and fully grapple with and understand the long-term effects of this kind of urban war. Um, but as I was saying a bit before, unfortunately we have quite a few case studies now um, of Mosul, of Raqqa, of other places, um, of understanding exactly the impacts of, of these kinds of weapons on, on urban environments, far beyond the, the fatalities alone. And Emily, uh, would be interested to hear a bit more how you also include the, uh, yeah, the Israeli hostages in your reporting. Yeah, it's a good question. For us, a civilian is a civilian, uh, no matter where they're from. Um, so we've seen in some cases, such as the Jabalia case, um, there were seven hostages that Qassam, um, the militant group, said had died in that strike. Um, so we included them in our casualty range and we include them in the assessment. Um, I think this is one of the, the real tragedies of the unfolding situation, but also one of the inevitabilities of such an intense urban campaign is it's very difficult to distinguish between uh, civilians and militants um, when you have such an intense campaign um, in an urban area, um, particularly one as, as complicated as Gaza. Yeah, thanks a lot, Emily, for elaborating on that. Also reflecting on, on what you just mentioned and kind of zooming out a bit, um, why is this important? Why is it important to do this casualty recording work? Why is it relevant? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think we all at AirWars kind of remind ourselves of the importance of our work every day um, because it is really difficult. Um, I think one of the, the big things for us is that it's important always to have a public record um, for us to kind of maintain our humanity and perspective, um, we really need to know the consequences of the wars that are often you know, fought in, in our names. Um, but I also think that there are all of these kind of different justice and accountability um, implications, um, whether that's an individual who's just seeking to understand what happened to their friend or their relative. Um, casualty recording is really the first point of call for that. Um, you can really understand what otherwise would be dismissed as the fog of war or the chaos of information or collateral damage. Um, as soon as you can understand it in a granular way, um, you can also facilitate individual routes to um, truth or reparations or um, whatever it might be. I think casualty recording has a huge variety of applications, um, but it's also um, often quite undervalued or underappreciated. Um, I think when you look at yeah, the statements made by either President Biden um, or other US members of the US administration in reflection to their own uh, casualties resulting from their own actions across um, other areas of the world, um, it's always the 
the contentious point um, that is a kind of obstacle between an individual who's been affected by what must be the most kind of traumatic moment of their lives um, and the truth um, from the person who, you know, who, was, uh, who caused it. You already mentioned truths and reparations. Is it also a direction where you see errors going, uh, moving forward? What are kind of the next step and what do you also expect or hope to see from governments? Yes, I mean, for us, we see our archive as a starting point for so many different things. Um, the way that we do our work and the way that we document everything is meant to be entirely transparent so that it can be replicated, whether you're an investigator or an individual or a government. Um, and we hope that, yes, that will support um, a variety of different um, you know, routes to accountability um, that can be that can be reparations for some. Um, it could be um, kind of human rights litigation for others, or it could just be a kind of an individual, as I said, kind of looking to know what, what happened to their loved ones. And Emily, I think um, we'd be remiss in ending this episode without talking about the roles of other countries in this conflict, uh, including countries like the United States, the Netherlands, the UK. Uh, as an organization based in the UK, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the role that you see there. And of course, we'll we'll talk about the other countries as well. but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been a little forgotten, but in November last year, uh, more than 80 states, including the United Kingdom and the United States, signed on to uh, quite a groundbreaking declaration at the time. It was uh, a commitment from these states to um, address the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. As a quick aside, you can learn more about the political declaration on explosive weapons in populated areas in season two, episode three of this podcast in which our team traveled to Dublin to cover the declaration's signing. And the wording of the declaration is, is extremely interesting and it was very profound at the time. Um, we were on the back of, um, you know, several months of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine um, and there felt to be a sea change um, in geopolitics at that moment, at least amongst kind of military powerful states like the United Kingdom. Um, but we said no more, you know, the use of these weapons and explosive, explosive weapons in populated areas um, is causing undue harm to civilians. You know, the proportion of, of people dying in, in these in these kind of battlegrounds are in their majority civilians. And since then, I think, disappointingly, there has been complete silence um, on this topic, not just from the United Kingdom, but also from um, so many of the other signatories who signed on to that, that declaration. Um, there's also, a, you know, an interesting thing happening in, in the United States. I think you've talked about it before on the podcast in this kind of civilian harm uh, mitigation and response action plan and, and the wording of the U.S. administration that's now, you know, being echoed around the world by the U.S. allies, including the United Kingdom and the Netherlands and others, um, is that civilian harm, you know, it can be mitigated and it should be accounted for, um, no matter the conflict theatre, whether it's an extremely complicated counterinsurgency, you know, counterinsurgency campaign, or it's a peer-to-peer -peer conflict, or it's a, you know, whatever it may be, um, that there's still room for the protection of civilians in those campaigns. Um, and I think... The United Kingdom is not alone uh, in its allies in, in being quite silent on that topic at the moment um, and perhaps um, not, not quite remembering the commitments it signed up to, um, you know, less than a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to your point, Emily, in addition to the, the political declaration, as you just mentioned, the U.S. has in the last year or so really tried to position itself as a leader and made these commitments around how it will prevent and respond to civilian harm after two decades of operations that have caused devastating civilian harm, as your organization has, has documented quite well. 
Um, and that commitment has included doing that work with partners. Uh, and, and the credibility of that initiative is really, you know, comes into question when, when we see some of the, the messaging or lack thereof that we're seeing around protection of civilians um, in this conflict. Uh, the other thing that I think is important to note, and Thomas, maybe I'll ask you to talk about this when it comes to the Netherlands as well, is the U.S. and Israel have a very, very unique, very large security assistance relationship. Um, and when it comes to explosive weapons in populated areas, we are very concerned about the transfer of explosive weapons to Israel with absolutely no conditions around their use. Um, in fact, we've seen multiple statements from various officials in the U.S. saying there are no red lines, there are no conditions when it comes to U.S. aid to Israel. And that is deeply, deeply concerning um, and a violation of, of U.S. law and policy, in fact. We've not placed any conditions on, uh, on the provision of this equipment. We are not putting conditions on the military assistance that we are providing to Israel. We are not going to create any conditions on the support that we are giving Israel to defend itself. Yeah, also very recognizable if you look at the Dutch context where I'm based, of, of course. Um, I think what was really shocking, or at least for a lot of people here in the Netherlands, is that the Dutch abstained at the UN General Assembly vote on the ceasefire. And I think that also really showed where a lot of the European countries and the US also really isolate themselves from the rest of the world, not standing uh, to protect uh, civilians. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's causing a lot of harm um, also in the future in other conflicts, right? So the accusations of double standards come up a lot, yeah, which, which, which will further isolate uh, the US and the EU. Um, also, I think one of the reasons as PACS, I think we all, all organizations, all three of us, but also many others, we are, have been very vocal on calling for a ceasefire and protection of civilians. Um, also, of course, something that we didn't address yet is also the hostages, the Israeli hostages uh, that are still held in Gaza, uh, which we all hope will be released. And we are also asking our governments to, uh, to make sure that they will be released. On the 22nd of November, after recording this episode, Hamas and the Israeli authorities announced having reached a deal that would allow for a four-day pause in fighting and the release of at least 50 women and children held hostage in Gaza in exchange for the release of a number of Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Our organizations have welcomed the hostage release and the possibility for more humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip. We continue to push for a permanent ceasefire as this is the only way to protect civilians, the return of all hostages and a long-term solution to the conflict that also seeks to address its root causes. And also like if you talk about complicity of state or, or state involvement, we also see in the Netherlands that they, even after the 7th of October, they continue to deliver spare parts for F-35 uh, planes, um, which is also why we as PAX took the, uh, took the decision together with some other organizations to sue the Dutch state because they keep continue doing that. So I think there's also, there's a lot of, if you talk about like state involvement and especially the three countries where we are living in, um, yeah, there's a lot to do still, unfortunately. Emily, is there anything we didn't ask you about that you think we should have? I think maybe I would just like to take the moment to kind of amplify the network that, that we're part of, which is the Casualty Recorders Network. Um, we're not the only organization that does this work. We're not the only one with this um, approach. Um, we're part of an, an organization uh, called Every Casualty Counts, so the Casualty Network is, is within that. And there are these standards for casualty recording that they developed back in 2016. Um, and I think it's important, um, no matter how you're looking at the conflict or how you're really understanding these casualties, um, to really take into account the fact that, um, yeah, that, that there is a network of, of organizations trying to do this difficult work um, and that 
we certainly feel that it's important, particularly at this time. Thank you so much, Emily, for that work and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Civilian Protection Podcast. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians in conflict. Today's episode was written by Annie Schiel, Thomas van Gogh, Irin Bell, and Hajar Nijli, and produced by the Podcast Guru. Hajar and Matt Longmore made sure we are online. Thank you to be our guest, Emily Tripp, for joining and sharing her expertise. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you would like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content like full interviews. You can also find behind the scenes content and interviews on our YouTube channel, as well as civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.